Hello everyone to the latest CSEN podcast. My name is Ole and I'm the Director of Macroeconomic and Monetary Policy Management at the CSEN Center. We recently welcomed Professor Sebastian Edwards to the CSEN Center where he guest lectured on two of our courses. I'll tell you more about Sebastian in a minute, but I just wanted to thank him for joining us both in KL and in Sri Lanka where he contributed a total of five lectures uh, on two of our courses. On the margins of our monetary policy strategies and operations event in Sri Lanka, I caught up with uh, Sebastian and chatted to him for about half an hour. So what you're going to hear in a minute is my conversation with Sebastian about a book he recently wrote on a US default that happened in the 1930s, a little known event that happened in the 1930s. His view on exchange rates, uh, macroeconomics, and what's going on in the region, and his experiences at the CSEN Center. I'm hoping you'll enjoy this month's podcast. Thanks for listening. As always, we welcome comments uh, and thoughts. You should know by now that you can reach us um, either at podcast at csen.org or on our Twitter at CSEN Center. With that, enjoy the podcast. I'm extremely pleased to be in conversation today with Professor Sebastian Edwards, who is the Henry Ford II Chair in International Management at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. Let me just briefly introduce uh, Sebastian um, for those of you who've been uh, hiding uh, in a cave uh, for the last uh, couple of years. Um, Sebastian is uh, the author of more than 200 scientific articles on international economics, macroeconomics, and economic development. From 1993 to uh, April 1996, he was the chief economist for the Latin American and Caribbean region of the World Bank. In September 2004, he was appointed to California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger's Council of Economic Advisors, and we will have a, a, I will ask him about um, that. And he has been a consultant to several multilateral inst institutions, including the Inter-American Development Bank, the World Bank, the IMF, and the OECD. He's also been a consultant to the United States Agency for International Development, and he has worked in a large number of uh, developing and emerging markets. It would take too long to mention all of them, but in uh, on several different continents, so both in Latin America, in Africa, and in Asia. So I can't think of anyone more experienced and more qualified to talk to us today about some some uh, ab um, about some of the issues. We will talk about two things in particular today. One is uh, Sebastian has written a new book tantalizingly called American Default. So Professor Edwards, can you just give us a quick summary of the book and in particular the sort of fascinating interplay between the political, economic and legal aspects? Uh, thank you all so much. Uh, let me first say that uh, I'm uh, very honored uh, to be participating in one of your podcasts. Um, and uh, to uh, talk uh, with you about my new bo uh, book, uh, American Default. Uh, so one way to think about the book is that it tells the story of when the United States behaved like an emerging market uh, in the sense that uh, the government restructured uh, its 
debt in a unilateral um, fashion and uh, uh, in addition to that, in a retroactive fashion, um, uh, imposing uh, losses uh, to investors uh, of the order of 41%. Uh, but not only that, uh, it also forced uh, private uh, debtors uh, to change uh, their contracts. Uh, so it imposed uh, a very severe loss relative to contracts uh, to uh, creditors, both of the private and the public sector. And this happened in 1933, uh, when the uh, Roosevelt uh, administration uh, was uh, trying to get out of the Great uh, Depression. Now, I should, I should have mentioned that uh, the book is being published by Princeton University Press and is coming out, uh, the launch is imminent, so it's a 20, 2018 launch. Um, I've been fortunate enough, I've seen uh, sort of bits and pieces of it, and most of the reviewers talk about the momentous decisions that were taken at the time. So how come no, no one knows about them today? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't that long ago, and uh, as you mentioned, uh, the idea of, of the U.S. defaulting on its debt is sort of uh, inconceivable. Right, that's a very, very good question, and I write about it in the introduction to the book. And uh, what I say is that uh, Americans have decided to have collective amnesia with respect to this particular episode in the country's history. Uh, the way Americans think of themselves, or the way we think of ourselves, is as a country uh, where the rule of law prevails and where uh, contracts are sacred. And we would uh, generally uh, not uh, change uh, unilaterally and let alone retroactively contracts. Uh, but it did happen uh, less than 100 years ago. Uh, about 80 years ago, and uh, it, uh, in it, in the process, um, all three branches of government participated. Uh, the idea came from the executive, from uh, President Roosevelt. Uh, the uh, legislative approved it uh, in a joint resolution of Congress, which are very rare, which was passed on June 5th, 1933. And then the Supreme Court ruled uh, in February of 1935 uh, that it was okay uh, to do this uh, in, in, a, in a rather complex uh, set of rulings, which we may talk about. But, but all three branches participated in this. And at the time, it was thought that this was one of the most important decisions the Supreme Court had ever uh, made. Uh, but as you say, uh, in a convenient or maybe surprising way, uh, collectively we have decided to forget about this episode. So uh, a few specialists, uh, some historians and some uh, economists who have studied the Great Depression know about it, but most people, uh, most journalists, most uh, writers uh, of editorial pages in the major newspapers will tell you that the federal government has never defaulted or restructured its debt. And that is not true. It did it uh, in uh, 1933, and the Supreme Court said, uh, guys, it's okay to do that. 
Which brings me to two other questions I have. So one is you mentioned that you fold, and if I understand it correctly, sort of by the basis, sort of in comparison, it was one of the largest defaults uh, um, we have seen as a sort of as a percentage of GDP. So that would be one. And uh, if if you could just just tell us how large the, the default was. The second question is just about the creative process. I mean, how did you find out about this? Uh, and uh, I mean, is there is there a story behind that? Okay, so uh, let, let me answer the first uh, question first, but I, I think that before getting into how large it was, uh, let me explain the nature of what actually happened. Uh, since uh, the Civil War in the 1860s, uh, most debt in the United States, both private and public, was written in terms of gold, and the debtor, uh, committed uh, himself or herself uh, to paying back in gold equivalent. Now, uh, since 1834, the value of gold had been constant um, at $20.67 an ounce. Uh, and convertibility had been maintained, except for very brief periods of time, uh, including during the Civil War. So all public sector debt, 100% of public sector debt, Plus, most private sector debt was documented in gold terms. And what uh, Roosevelt decided to do was to devalue the dollar relative to gold. So this is very much an emerging markets type of story. Uh, think of an emerging market where most debt is denominated in foreign exchange, say US dollars. And let's think of Argentina or of uh, Thailand in 697. And uh, then they are forced or they decide to devalue the currency. And then there is a big problem because since most debt or all debt is in the hard currency, which in the case of the US was gold, or in the case of the emerging markets, uh, is, uh, was the dollar, um, everyone will go bankrupt. So what Roosevelt decided to do, well, no problem. I will change the contracts. And I will uh, have all contracts be rewritten in terms of paper dollars in a retroactive fashion. So that was what happened. Uh, the amount of debt involved was about 140% of GDP, which is much larger than Argentina or most of the defaults that we have seen in the emerging markets. By the time the, the Supreme Court ruled, uh, about $100 billion of corporate uh, private sector debt were involved and about $20 billion of public sector debt. By then, GDP was about $70 billion. So that is the magnitude. Now, your second question is, how did I find out about that and became interested in this? And it, uh, the answer is actually, I think, quite interesting. And it has to do with emerging, emerging markets. And uh, in the year 2002 or 2003, I was asked by a law firm from New York to help them uh, in a case they were working involving the Argentine default of 2002. And uh, since I've done a lot of, I had done a lot of work on uh, foreign debt and currency crisis and so on, this was a good fit for me to work with uh, these lawyers. And um, oh, the first thing I had to do was to read the Argentine brief in this case. 
where they argued that they had rewritten their contracts, which were in dollars, into pesos in a retroactive fashion. And then they had the value of the peso, which was one peso, one dollar, and it went all the way to four at that time, pesos per dollar, now it's 18. And they said, uh, we did it because it was needed. It was the legal necessity argument. For the survival of the nation, we needed to do it. And as I was reading the Argentine legal brief, there was one paragraph that said there is a historical precedent. The US did it in 1933. The Supreme Court ruled that it was OK in 1935. If it was okay for the US to use the necessity argument during the Great Depression, it is certainly okay for us to use the necessity argument in 2002. And I said, oh my god, how come I don't know about this? And they don't teach this in graduate school. And I started asking around. And a few of my economic historians friends knew about it, but nothing detail had been written on the subject and how that's how I got into it and it's a fascinating story and I ended up working on the archives of uh, economists, uh, advisors to the president, the president's archives, the secretary of the treasury's archives, the attorney general's archives, some of the supreme court justices archives so it was a very interesting process uh, that uh, at the end told me well there was a time when the United States behaved like a banana republic. Another fascinating aspect of the story that sort of interested me is it involves some very prominent economists uh, uh, at the time uh, as well. Some which are still known today, some again, which, which, some who aren't known, known today but played a very important uh, role uh, then. Um, so extrapolating from that, just wanted to ask you what this sort of the level of understanding of economics was at the time. I mean, we are in a we have the benefit of hindsight in terms of what was lacking or what what they should have known at the time, or, or maybe there was uh, something. I mean, I, I mentioned this because we always think that we we currently know everything there is to know about about economics, uh, but then you know the the science has a way of sort of kind of surprising us and teaching teaching us new things. Well, that's another very good question. And uh, the economics profession at the time knew very little about uh, the economics of exchange rates and uh, currencies. Uh, probably uh, the three people that had thought the most about the subject were uh, Gustav Cassels from uh, Sweden, and he had written a very famous book uh, where he had expo exposed and talked about uh, purchasing power parity. Uh, John Maynard Keynes uh, had written uh, a lot about it and had criticized the gold standard very severely in a uh, tract on monetary reform, he had referred to the gold standard as a relic, an absurd relic that we still uh, had uh, operation, op operating. And Irving Fisher, uh, the Yale professor, um, was a severe critic also of the gold standard. And he had proposed um, an alternative which he called the compensated uh, dollar. Um, uh, but the actual way a devaluation uh, should work and the channels through which it uh, affects the economy 
was not very well understood. And uh, there's good reason for that, because there had not been too many devaluations. Um, uh, the most important one probably was the devaluation of the franc after World War I. Um, uh, the, Brit the British had suspended convertibility during the Great War, but then came back uh, when Churchill was the Chancellor of the Exchequer at the same old exchange rate, and that was a big problem. And as I said earlier, the U.S. had had uh, the same currency value in terms of gold since 1834. And before that, it uh, was almost the same. It was $19.6 to, to the ounce of gold. So there's very little that we knew at the time. So just to give you an example, uh, something that we teach our undergraduate students is the elasticities approach to the evaluation. We say if the currency is devalued, then under certain circumstances, the trade balance will improve. And those circumstances are known as the Marshall Learner condition. Uh, and that's, uh, those uh, conditions say that the sum of the elasticities involved has to exceed a certain number, one. So the supply and demand for export and imports have to be elastic so that they respond to the change in the currency. We didn't know anything about that at the time. Marshall had written his book on international commerce, and one of the appendices had sort of a kernel of that condition. But Abba Lerner had not written uh, his book on the economics of control, where he sort of, sort of rounded this. And other contributors to this uh, whole discussion were uh, Joan Robinson, but she writes in the early 40s about this. So it's fascinating to see how the economics profession is trying to understand what's going on and what to do, but they really don't know what is really happening. I'll return to the question of, of economics in a minute. Um, we normally sort of, uh, well, history teaches us that defaulting countries are normally shut out from financial markets as a result of a, of, of a default. But I mean, that obviously didn't happen to the US. So, um, so what was different at the time or what was different in terms of the American default? And are there any lessons for today? Well, um, I um, actually uh, looked at the issue in great uh, detail, and you're right, there were no dire consequences. So let me give you a little context here. If you uh, uh, try to understand um, uh, something about the, this episode, which is known in the literature as the abrogation of the gold clause, uh, you find about a paragraph and a half in Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz's uh, Monetary History of the United States. And um, uh, the one paragraph describes what happens on passing very, very briefly. And the half paragraph is in the concluding chapter. They say that the um, uh, fact that the US got off gold in 33 was positive. Um, because it allowed for capital, uh, for gold and capital to flow in, to fly into the U.S. to flow in, it flew, it flew in, and uh, the Federal Reserve did not sterilize that, so the quantity of money increased, uh, um, and that uh, helped get out of the uh, depression. But then they added, however, in spite of this positive aspect having annulled the gold clauses was very negative, as it um, attempted against property rights and so on and so forth. 
so I looked in great detail, and the, the reality is that the U.S. Uh, was not hurt by this. And um, um, there are two issues here, I think, that come into play. The first one is that um, it was seen by the market as an excusable episode. And there is a theory developed by the late uh, Herschel Grossman and his uh, co-author Van Hyck um, about excusable defaults. And uh, sometimes the market uh, sees uh, and understands that uh, the best way out and everyone will win if there is a restructuring. And the second aspect is that it was done very much by the book. And uh, the government, uh, apparently, although it's uh, I tell a little side story in the book, uh, was willing to abide by whatever the ruling was of the court. And uh, the case was, uh, or the cases, there were three of them, uh, were heard by the Supreme Court, and the rule of law and the, the due process was followed. Um, and that uh, then uh, showed uh, the public that this was not a capricious uh, decision. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that contrary to what we have seen uh, in the emerging markets case, the U.S. had no problem uh, tapping the capital market. Uh, the Treasury was able to continue to issue debt and had no problem rolling it over. Um, interest rates actually went down rather than up. Uh, so in that regard, it was uh, um, a different episode. And the explanations are the ones that I just gave you. Great. Thank you very much. Let me return to the to the economists because you describe quite vividly how there were two different schools of economists vying for President Roosevelt's ear and trying to convince him of the respective uh, sort of superiority of whichever 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 side uh, they were on. Can you just explain what happened? And uh, I'm being a bit cheeky here. Whether you have any advice on on how you would. Uh, uh, on how, what's the best way of, of advising a president is in terms of economics um, today? Well, uh, another very good question, uh, which could elicit a long uh, answer or many answers because it's very interesting. Uh, the first one is that during uh, the first year, approximately, of the Roosevelt administration, there were almost no professional economists that advised him. Um, it's not exactly true, but almost uh, true. Um, uh, there was a uh, professional economist who advised uh, the Secretary of State, um, and uh, he was very good, and he did uh, talk uh, often to the president. Uh, his name was Herbert Feist. Um, during the campaign, there had been one professional economist who was a very close advisor to Roosevelt, a professor at Columbia, uh, Rexford Tugwell, but his uh, expertise uh, had to do with agricultural economics, and in his uh, memoirs and in his diaries, he recognizes that he doesn't know anything about gold or money, uh, so he didn't know uh, much. Uh, so. There are very few economists, or if any, in the immediate circle. Now, um, if one looks at the group in general um, of economists that were a little bit on the outer circles, uh, Irving Fisher was a very important critic, as I said, of the gold standard. 
uh, but what he was pushing for uh, was uh, a dollar fixed to a basket of commodities rather than only gold. Um, and uh, he said that um, that meant that in order to keep it stable with respect to the basket, its price with respect to gold uh, had to fluctuate. And then he called for a devaluation of the dollar with respect to, to gold. Then was an, there was another group uh, of bankers slash economists um, uh, who tried to maintain the gold standard. And a very important character there was a banker called James Warburg. And he was the son of a very prominent banker and one of the founders of the Federal Reserve, Paul Warburg, and of the Warburg uh, banking uh, family. Then Keynes was outside, because in, the, in Great Britain, but he was opining on all of this at the same time. And he wanted to get uh, to devalue the dollar, but go, get back to some kind of gold standard. Um, the very important issue here was that, according to the rules of the game, the central banks and the Federal Reserve had to back a certain percentage of its liabilities with gold. And that percentage was known as the cover ratio. And it was 45%. So no less than 45% of its liabilities have to be covered by gold. And there was a concern by central banks that if they lost gold, then they would have to shrink their balance sheet. And one solution that a lot of people talked about was, well, why don't we reduce the gold cover, and that was what Warburg was proposing. Um, so anyway, it's uh, all of this discussion, and at some point, uh, Roosevelt changes uh, advisors and uh, falls in the hands of a very obscure agricultural economist uh, called George Warren uh, from Cornell, and uh, follows his advice and. Uh, uh, that results in the ultimate devaluation of the dollar, official devaluation, in January of 34. So if I understand, uh, you, um, I sort of had a, uh, a little bit of, uh, of an insight into the book. So if I understand Warren's argument correctly, he saw a direct link between the price of gold and the price of agricultural products. And then you will have to ex uh, sort of uh, elaborate a little bit further, if, uh, if you would. Because you describe this image of FDR daily setting agricultural prices in the Oval Office. I mean, it, I mean, I may be doing him injustice. Was it sort of arbitrarily setting prices, or was there a method behind behind that? Uh, well, uh, you you got it almost uh, right. So let me let me tell the story as it as it actually happened. So Warren. Uh, with a colleague of his called Pierce, uh, a statistician, Frank Pierce. They studied about 200 years of data uh, of, of commodity prices, and they found a very strong correlation between the price of gold uh, and uh, the price of commodities. And, uh, but they didn't uh, explain what the mechanism was. Um, so they said, all we need to do to increase agricultural prices, which is what Roosevelt wanted, that was his number one goal in 33, 
was to increase the price of commodities, which had fallen by about 70% since 1919. Uh, so uh, Warren says, all we need to do is increase the price of gold. And uh, then he says, uh, but the mechanism has nothing to do with the quantity theory of money. Um, so he sets himself apart from monetary theorists. And he convinces Roosevelt that if the government buys gold at an arbitrary price, which is higher every time, higher than the official price, which is 2067, then automatically the price of corn, wheat, cotton, barley, eggs, beef, and so on will go up. And so starting in August of 33, and then intensified in October, uh, the government puts in place what is known as the gold buying program. Where the government, whereby the government would buy very small amounts of gold at an arbitrarily uh, price. And that price was determined every morning by Roosevelt in conjunction with Warren and his uh, advisor and then eventually Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau. And he did this while he was in bed having breakfast. Now, we have to remember that President Roosevelt um, was handicapped and he was confined to a wheelchair. Uh, so uh, he didn't have a lot of mobility. Uh, so he, uh, every morning, would have a breakfast in bed and would receive his closest advisors. And those uh, bedside uh, cabinet meetings, which were very small, a very small group, uh, were very important during at least the first uh, two years of the Roosevelt administration. And in a totally arbitrary fashion, he would set the price of gold uh, while in bed. Um, the system or the program did not work, and it uh, was very severely criticized by a number of economists and journalists. But the most important criticism came from Keynes in an open letter uh, to the president, which was published by the New York Times on the last day of 1933, on December 31, 1933. Now, you are known as one of the world's foremost uh, experts on, uh, open economy, on the open economy, especially for developing and emerging markets. And I mentioned at the beginning that in 2004, um, you were called upon to serve uh, on the Council of Economic Advisors for uh, then Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger in California. Now, California by itself, and I may get the exact ranking wrong, but uh, I mean, California on its own would be the world's sixth or seventh uh, economy. Uh, so a far cry from from developed from a, from a developed and uh, and emerging market. So um, I, I would just like to know how uh, sort of um, um, how your training as an economist equipped you to sort of change mindsets from developing and emerging markets to what would be one one of the ten largest economies in the world. Uh, well. Um, the reason uh, Governor uh, Schwarzenegger asked me to join his council had to do mostly uh, with the fact that uh, California is a very open economy and international trade. Uh, and here by international, I mean international with uh, countries other than the United States is very important. And in particular, uh, trade with Mexico is very important. So there was a concern about the Latin American angle 
and uh, that's one reason why he asked me uh, to join. A second reason is that uh, uh, the chairman of that council was uh, former Secretary of State George Schultz, uh, whom I've known for many, many years. And uh, given uh, the need of someone who knew about uh, Latin America and Mexico, uh, he uh, convinced the governor to invite me, and that was uh, important. And I think that the third uh, point is that uh, California being a very large economy, uh, has uh, some uh, characteristics that are similar to emerging markets. In particular, its agricultural sector is very, very important. And uh, I um, advise the government on those issues. And uh, one of the most interesting things that I did uh, while I was in the council was uh, prepare a study for the governor, for Governor Schwarzenegger, um, analyzing the then-proposed uh, uh, Edwards-McCain uh, bill, uh, excuse me, Kennedy-McCain, Edward-Kennedy-McCain Kennedy, uh, Kennedy uh, bill on immigration, which was never passed. So Senator Edward Kennedy and John McCain, so from Massachusetts and from Arizona, uh, one uh, leader of the Democratic Party, the other one a leader of the Republican Party, join forces and try to have this immigration law. And of course, um, for a state like California, that's vital. Uh, so um, uh, although this is federal legislation, the governor of California uh, has to have a very clear opinion um, and uh, knowledge about uh, the, uh, this particular type of legislation. So I worked with him on those issues, and, and it was very interesting. Let me conclude uh, our our discussion by just asking you sort of a more uh, sort of a not really economics related question, which is that uh, so we were fortunate to be able to have you on two of our uh, seminars uh, both th this week and last week. So you've been uh, you have lectured on our courses, and you've also been uh, you had the opportunity to travel a bit uh, in the region. Any sort of first impressions uh, on on either of those of those two topics? Well, I am uh, very positively positively impressed by Season's uh, uh, work. Um, I thought that the seminars are very well structured. I have been involved in the training of central bankers for a very very long time. For almost twenty years, I was. Uh, a fixture of the Gerson's the uh, famous courses uh, that are offered by the National Bank of Switzerland uh, near Bern. Um, and uh, so I've uh, taught hundreds and hundreds of central bankers. And I think that your courses are very well, very well structured. Um, and um, I was very impressed by some of the participants, and I think that they ask the right questions. They are very eager uh, to learn, um, and, uh, and and that has been uh, very interesting and very rewarding to me. And throughout my career, of course, I've spent uh, a lot of time comparing uh, Asia and uh, Latin America. and. Uh, 
one of the areas where that comparison uh, is particularly interesting has to do with uh, monetary stability, uh, currencies, central bank behavior, inflation, and so on. So while in Latin America, inflation is very persistent, it has a lot of inertia, uh, it has very little inertia in most uh, Asian countries. And, and those differences uh, come uh, to the top when you discuss these issues uh, with uh, central bankers. So it's been a very rewarding experience. Fantastic. I think that would be the appropriate place to, to stop. So let me thank uh, once again Professor Sebastian Edwards from UCLA for taking the time out, talking to us, and most importantly, sharing, sharing his insights uh, and wisdom with, uh, with our member central banks. So Professor Edwards, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It's a pleasure.